0: Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome to Emporia State Catholics. Um, I'm Father Matt, and I'm joined by Patrick Callahan, and, and you are listening to our Orthodoxy Book Club. Today, we are discussing the ninth and final chapter authority and the adventurer
1: right um, and i'm going to go back to several podcasts earlier and say that this is the best chapter i correct my earlier provision
0: yeah I'm, I'm going to join you on that uh as well i um was very impressed with this chapter rereading it um i'm going to revise i, I can't remember i think i said paradoxes of christianity was my favorite this is uh an incredible chapter and also uh I, the first thing that jumped out to me as i was reading it was he picks up a a line of argument uh in this chapter that he will develop in depth in everlasting man 15 years later
1: yeah he he does that right he's he's going to start out the chapter by saying like look this again this has not been a book of apologetics that's not the point of this book the po- the point of the book was to give a personal account of why i came to believe and what does he say in on the second page of the chapter? He says, um,
0: well, he talks about someone who says like, okay, look, you found um, a practical philosophy in the doctrine of the fall very well. You found a, you, you know, you found all these, these uh, truths uh, in these doctrines. Why not just, uh, you know, for instance, like with original sin makes, uh, gives place for human yeah. weakness. Why don't you just accept human weakness? Uh, Why do you need to accept the doctrine of the fall as well?
1: Right. He says, if you see clearly the kernel of common sense and the nut of Christian orthodoxy, why cannot you simply take the kernel and leave the nut? Right. So what he's saying is, is like, you know, why does it have to be taken whole cloth? Why can't I just pick and choose? And he follows it up with saying, look, I'm not going to give a a whole out apologetics for everything the church believes. But I'm also going to say that uh, a multiplicity of uh, philosophy books is not usually going to be the thing that comes to make someone believe. Right? The, the very next page after that second one, he says, "A man may well be less convinced of a philosophy from four books than from one book, one battle, one landscape, and one old friend." Which it goes back to the um, the personal nature of of some of this. You know, I, I paused over that because what is it? Uh, Cardinal Newman talks about with the idea of faith and belief, the idea of it being like a cable, right? That you need multiple threads to all spool together, um, and it's going to be stronger than the, the single beam. But I don't, I don't, I, for a moment when I read that, and I thought, okay, is Chesterton contradicting, you know, Saint, now Saint Cardinal Newman, and I don't think they're talking about the same thing, though, in the end. One old friend is more than just you know, the single person, it's all these countless incidences that make up that friendship, that that build the trust. So if I introduce you to a hundred strangers who propose Christianity, it's not going to be as effective as that one one old friend that you trust coming and proposing Christianity.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Which again, um, I hate to, um, to, well, I don't actually hate, I kind of thrive off of contradicting current fads and evangelization. The current fads in evangelization, which is like to throw all this material at you, to throw all these people at you, we're going to constantly shuffle um, missionaries around and move priests around and get you exposed to as many people as possible until something sticks on the wall. And I need you to go out and multiply your discipleship and your evangelization. But saying, no, no, no. What we need, you know, is is one old friend who's going to see you through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what, I gotta be honest. I mean, I didn't even pick up on the, you, you drew a lot of significance out of a line that I just kind of passed over. Um, But I think, I think you do make a good point that, um, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, even just to steal some common lingo from these popular evangelization uh, programs of the day, I mean, you know, you see Christ spent most of his time with 12 apostles and of those 12 with peter james and john uh and and at the end of it you know he said i no longer call you servants but friends i mean christ had this deep friendship with 12 men um and and we see it down through the ages i mean you know saint thomas aquinas um benefited from from i mean saint saint albert the great albertus magnus wasn't his peer necessarily but there was a real Friendship there, uh, mentorship there, um, that that brought out the tremendous gifts in St. Thomas Aquinas. Now St. Thomas Aquinas was a believer, a little bit different dynamic than what Chesterton's talking about here. But
1: yeah, yeah. it's it, it's different. But I, you know, again, like we're all called to that constant, the constant call to conversion, um, mm-hmm. and we all need we all need that in some sense. A different level of friendship. Today we want to have all sort of the same level of friendship, right? I have you know some. Five hundred some friends on Facebook or whatever you want to call it, but they're not real friends,
0: right? Well, you see this in Chesterton's own life. I mean, Chesterton was very um, G.K. Chesterton was very close to his uh, brother Cecil. Uh, There was Mm -hmm. Hilaire Belloc, Um, and then there was a priest, uh, a Catholic priest that he was very good friends with. Um, I think it's Father O'Connor, the one he and it's in Father O'Connor was instrumental in And his eventual coming into the roman catholic church but but also was the uh, inspiration for the father Brown yeah. character, the the priest detective which is which is what Chesterton's known for um, in England today more so than his apologetic work
1: but anyway, uh, I mean that's just one point in the in the chapter. I think the the more famous passage, I don't know if you would if you would agree necessarily it the most famous, same famous passage, but when he talks about the difference between um, the truths and the rules and the dogmas and how they're like children at the playground, which is the rules are the walls of the playground. And, and yeah. the playground is surrounded by this great sea. Um and I see if I can find the passage and maybe you could read it. Before we jump into that, yeah, sure. can we talk about the first triad
0: of arguments against the faith? Yeah, sure. Let's go there. Okay. So I, I, I really liked this, these two triads of, of kind of common arguments against the faith that he, he hits on in the beginning. So the first triad, he says, um, first, that men with their shape, structure, and sexuality are, after all, very much like beasts, a mere yeah. variety of the animal kingdom. Uh, so that's the first argument in the first triad of, of arguments against the faith. And he goes on to address this first argument by saying, like, okay, um, whoever found an anthill decorated with the statues of celebrated ants, who has ever seen, who has seen a beehive carved with the image of gorgeous queens of old? No, the chasm between man and other creatures may have a natural explanation, but it is a chasm. And this, this is the argument that he will touch on quite a bit in in Everlasting Man, which, 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 uh, We've, we've talked about Everlasting Man before. I mean, it, it's uh, a book written in response to H.G. Wells, The Outline of History, and it has two basic parts to it. The first part, he talks about what is distinctive about man among all creatures, and the second part, what is distinctive about the man Christ. But um, what, what struck me was there is a long tradition of seeing the distinction between man and the animals as being rationality, right? Man right. is a rational animal. And Chesterton doesn't um, contradict that or go against that, but but I think he draws out a more obvious example in art, right, in art, in, in, a, in an appreciation for beauty, in a historical memory. Um, and it's, it's, it's something, there is so much in human society that is inexplicable if we are mere animals
1: yeah and a part of it too it, it's not to say that we don't have that right that 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 he doesn't you know somehow concede that apes don't have hands it's right. what they do with them right uh, the, the same way i think he talks uh, you know the other aristotelian definition of man that kind of gets dropped a lot is man is the most mimetic animal you know the the thing with with that is that you know it's not that other animals don't imitate is that our imitation is at such a high degree that it, it becomes sort of other. What, what was it, uh, Ken Howe when he came and visited, uh, when we had him down for the talk uh, last spring, we talked about this too, right? You can sort of teach a, a chimp to, to paint to certain degrees, but it's it's never gonna make the leap on, on the scale of order to do the Sistine Chapel.
0: Yeah, and, and there are, um uh, he talked about this. Talked about uh, the millions and millions of dollars that had been poured into the great, great ape language project to to right. teach gorillas or chimps language. They learned pretty quickly that they just don't have the vocal cords to imitate human speech. But they try to teach them sign language. And he said, you know, what you what you what you end up with is kind of a, a behavior reward um, situation where. You know, they, right. they make this sign and they get this reward. It's, it's not true communication. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, but you also see it, you, you also don't see this progression or development within animal societies. I mean, the beehive hasn't been improved ever, right? The anthill hasn't been, you know, you don't see anthills developing. You know, you might see a gorilla use a stick to gauge the depth of a sea, of, of a river, not a sea. But that gauge is always a stick. They, they never improve that tool, um, you know? And uh, so it's, it's uh, I, I think this is a point worth talking about and worth contemplating because there are uh, still in 2020, there are people who try to um, see mankind as merely the most evolved animal rather than as something essentially distinct um, from, from the animals.
1: Right. And it, it kind of goes back to what we were dealing with within, in the last chapter, where it's the reduction of, you know, you're trying to sublimate something by saying that it's all one, mm-hmm. but actually you, you've lost the essence of, of both things when you try to resolve the difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that in Christian anthropology, you don't gain something, by seeing both the similarities and the differences between the person, the human person and the, and the animal species.
0: Right. Because, because the opposite, you know, to ignore, uh, you know, if we, again, if we use that classic Aristotelian definition, man is a rational animal. If you take the animal out of the equation, you wind right. up with this Cartesian ghost in a machine type philosophy, which, 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 um,
1: Right, which, he, which, you know, Chesterton talks about in this chapter, in sort of the dangerous trend he saw in the 19th and into the 20th century of just saying spirituality is an unqualified good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, where it's like, okay, well, what kind of spirituality? Because there are good spirits and there are bad spirits.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, in the, the other two in this triad... Uh, the, prim, the primeval religion arose in ignorance and fear. And then the third point is that priests have lighted society with bitterness. And so, you know, in all three of these instances, he says, well, I saw that the opposite was, in fact, true. And then he goes into this second triad, right, uh, where he's talking about Christ, uh, the idea that that uh, Christ is gentle and um, you know, kind of milk toast,
1: Right, and that's well, the way that people talk about him, but if you actually listen to Christ's words and observe Christ's action, it's nothing like that.
0: Right, right. I mean, he says, I actually read the New Testament, and, um, you know, he says, you know, what he, what he <laughs> sure. finds is, yeah, yeah, he has, with lips of thunder and acts of lure decision, flinging down tables, casting out devils, passing with the wild secrecy of the wind from mountain isolation to a sort of dreadful demagogy a being who often acted like an angry God, and always like a God, Christ had even a literal, you know, he goes on, and and, and he's just amazed that this common assumption um, is so contrary. And then he talks about, you know, Christianity rose in darkness and ignorance, and that, you know, the you know, he had this kind of stereotype about people who are like the Irish who were very religious, that they were, um, you know, weak or unpractical or whatever. But, you know, I, I I think what I liked about these two sets of triads is he is there are so many things in life um, that we just accept as true based out, on a popular assumption, based on a a, a really no investigation into it, and, right. and I I this is something I, as a Catholic priest I'm constantly bumping up against uh, in little ways and in big ways. You know, big ways meaning um, about the Catholic faith, uh, small ways. I mean, things like people, uh, you know, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but you know, there's, there's this idea out there that if you are gonna get an annulment, it's gonna cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. And it's, it is actually the opposite. We cannot, I can't even accept a gift for helping with an annulment, you know? Right. Uh, and and um, I, I'm sure the reason that's a common sum, an assumption is somewhere, in some place, there were abuses of that where uh, they did um, expect thousands of dollars to be paid for, it, but in reality-
1: uh, Well, I think it's a, uh, for, for that particular thing, I think in terms of studies, it's a, a correlation causation assumption where they look at annulments, it hap- what countries' annulments happen more often in, and they see they're wealthier countries. And then they they draw a, a causation aspect out of the correlation of that. But again, it's just you know the the misuse of statistics in the twentieth and twenty first century.
0: Quantifying the qualifiable.
1: <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, that's a that's a whole other podcast. And it is. I guess Chesterton does have good thoughts on that too. But um, yeah, it's it's again, it's the um, you know he's. That, that third part, though, about priests and, and colorless society, um, you know, it does sort of miss the point that we're moving to this very bland, uh, subdued age. Um, and even our sort of outbursts, right? It, it's um, the vulgarity, the obscenity, the whatever it is in pop culture. It's always there because everything else is lacking so much in all sorts of flavor that it tries to Overwhelm in the few areas of life where they try to install salt, but it's not real salt; it's imitation salt. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but I mean, I think of the you know, from a historical perspective, you know, Chesterton's age or not Chesterton, Chaucer, right? Chesterton's age is a, is a very bleak age with gray suits and black suits and flannels. I mean, but the age of Chaucer, people are getting in in upset uh, in, in legal disputes over, you know. Um, you know, the wearing of not enough or too many or not the right colors. Everyone is, is animated and, and enlivened.
0: Right, and he touches on this. The idea that these, um, you know, he mentions Catholic countries um,
1: yeah.
0: that Which there's... again,
1: interesting is 15 years before he becomes Catholic, but he's... Right.
0: Fixed,
1: no, these Catholic countries know it how to fun and, and were sticks in the mud
0: right right and you know i in visiting even today like if you were to go to italy for instance the assumption uh the immaculate conception these feast days they are public holidays there are um well i mean the assumption and immaculate conception are relatively recent dogmas even though they were believed in antiquity but Um, You know, you will find on a Saint's Feast Day, a local Saint's Feast Day, this marvelous tradition, cultural tradition very often, uh, processions, um, um, uh, acts of devotion that even in the Anglo-Catholic world, uh, we see lacking. Um, You know, for instance, if you've been to the Diddy Center, you will notice that uh, we do not have uh, votive candles, which is something I'm working on. And uh, someone was asking me why I thought we needed them. And I said, well, look, it's, it's, a, it's a part of our tradition. It's a part of our heritage. Um, and that didn't really seem to sway them. But what did was I said, look, we have a large Hispanic community. We have a lot of international students. They come from a Catholic culture where this is the norm, that you need to go pray before St. Therese and light a candle for your mom um, and ask her intercession, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. You, you see a vibrancy, I think, I think he's, he's seen a vibrancy in these cultures that haven't totally secularized the way England had by 1908. And, and what was true of England in 1908 is, is to the 10th degree true of uh, the United States in 2020 and, and England in 2020.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, can we move back to the, the point about the children on the Yeah, on the let's wall? do that. Let's do that. Um, Do you, it's, uh, if you don't have the passage out, I I pulled it up at this point. No, go. why don't you do that? Because I uh, I don't have it marked out. It's fine. Um, So, and if we took the third chance instance, it would be the same. The view that priests darken and embitter the world. I look at the world and simply discover that they don't. Those countries in Europe which are still influenced by priests are exactly the countries where there is still singing and dancing in colored dresses and art in the open air. Catholic doctrine and discipline may be walls, but they are walls of a playground. Christianity is the only frame which has preserved the pleasure of paganism. We might fancy some children playing on a flat, grassy top of some small, tall island in the sea. So long as there was a wall around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. But the walls were knocked down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice. They did not fall over, but when their friends returned to them, they were all huddled in terror in the center of the island and their song had ceased. Um, There's a a wonderful graduation speech, uh, not my class, but the class after me at the University of Dallas. Uh, was honored with this graduation speech, which used this image as sort of the central key point of the Catholic education that we had received at the University of Dallas, which said that, you know, know, here was a playground for you to discover and play. And, you know, the the point of the walls, the point of constructing this Catholic educational area was to make it safe for you to ask all these sorts of questions, not to deny the questions, but to, to, to raise them and, and to feel like you could raise them. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, in, unless you have the wall, you're going to sit there and you're not going to ask the questions. You're not going to sing the songs. You're not going to play intellectually. Um, because if you do that, then you, you risk the precipice.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and I would, I would say what Chesterton's talking about there too, it, it's not just intellectual inquiry, important though that is, but um simple simple culture uh celebrations uh, if you don't have these walls of of doctrine you know keeping you in the box, so to speak, your celebrations go over the edge um, your your culture goes over the edge um, and and I think we've continually seen that i mean um look at it, it, look look at what's happened to Christmas in this country uh, from a secular standpoint or, yeah. or, you know, it's, it's, uh, or Easter. Um, it's, it's been, you know, commercialized and, uh, secularized. And, um, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't know Santa Claus is, uh, is St. Nicholas. Uh, they don't but know. The,
1: the, the point is also that it becomes a chore. So even if they're like the externals, which are signifying of happy times, it becomes a chore and a business. And and we talk now about like psychological preparations for seeing the family and doing these things again.
0: Yeah. There's a burdensomeness to it and um, lack of a spontaneity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very true.
1: Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the book here. Um, I know there's a few other points that, that I liked in here. Is there, is there something else that we didn't touch on yet that you need, that you think needs to get picked up well i
0: I like what he what he does with miracles here I mean I mean he does dip into that but um, I like what he said about the despair of of the modern world uh, and this image of an outer ring uh, versus an inner ring uh, which kind of dovetails with what we've just said so let me read this passage here. Um, uh, He says, the strongest argument for the divine grace is simply its ungraciousness. The unpopular parts of Christianity turn out, when examined, to be the very props of the people. The outer ring of Christianity is a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and professional priests. But inside that inhuman guard, you will find the old human life dancing like children and drinking wine like men. For Christianity is the only frame for pagan freedom, but in the modern philosophy, the case is opposite. It is its outer ring that is obviously artistic and emancipated. Its despair is within, and its despair is this, that it does not really believe that there is any meaning in the universe. Therefore, it cannot hope to find any romance. Its romance will have no plots, a man cannot expect any adventures in the land of anarchy, but a man can expect any number of adventures if he goes traveling in the land of authority. Um, I think in light of what we just said, I mean, I think it, he kind of elaborates on it that, you know, people think the modern world is free and open, this open society, and um, but really there's a quiet despair in it that there's no ultimate meaning uh, that we can truly come to know, whereas Christianity has this outward appearance of this rigid, dogmatic religion, um, but inside it's it's not this oppressive force, but it's it's true liberty, um, true romance, and true adventure.
1: Yeah, and I think of um, I just read uh, right now this uh, collection of of last later poems by uh, Ursula Le Guin. Um, who people might know as, a, as an author of some juvenile novels, but um, also writes some poetry. And she has a final note in the book where she talks about um, verse and versification and sort of the, the madness that is complete formless free verse because you're inventing everything all the time, all at once. And it's very, very rare for you to hit upon something right Mm-hmm. You're inventing the wheel each and every single time and that there's sort of a, a beautiful tension that allows you to invent and discover when you're given some grounds. I mean, it's kind of like when you think about it, um, uh, improv, In the improv, you don't just stand there and do nothing. Oftentimes in the improv, you know, you're given sort of the, the basics of a scene, you know, this is a store, what are some names? Uh, w- you know, what's this person trying to do, you're not given everything, but you're given enough that you have to create with it, and the the humor, and the goodwill, and the, the drama all comes from um, playing with a set of rules, or impositions, and, and walls that are constructed around it, um, and, I, and that's, I mean, that's the title of the, um, the chapter too, right, Authority and the Adventure. Right.
0: And, you know, um, what I was also really intrigued with, just to kind of go along this same line, he talked about Christianity as a truth-telling thing, right, as a living teacher, Uh, which, I don't know, I, I suppose in 1908, an Anglican could believe that, that Anglicanism had preserved this apostolic tradition, if you... I mean, from our perspective as Roman Catholics, it would be a misunderstanding of apostolic tradition, but um, I I don't know that, I certainly don't think an Anglican could hold that position today, but you can see that he's looking um, for essentially apostolic tradition and a magisterium, a living um, teacher, uh, and not just these these doctrines and dogmas, uh, important though those are, um, that can be that authority. Uh, I guess we're going to use the example of rules of a game like the referee who can uh, or the umpire who can call someone out or call a ball or a strike.
1: Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's just a really good chapter. And again, it, I feel like he's a little more free in this part because and you, you hear the name Christ repeated so much more often in this chapter than the earlier parts. And I return to sort of my late motif, my, of my contributions on this podcast. Which is, you know, again the the parallels of this book with Augustine's Confessions, that you started out, you know, with confrontations with modernity and the world around him, and what we're ending up with here now finally is, you know, Christ entering in and being this sort of the center around which he keeps revolving, and it's not a pointless re- revolving. I mean, it's it's an ascension. It's a spiral staircase, as it were, going up, and so he keeps on knocking all all these points, but but Christ becomes the center around which he can build this staircase.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm
1: Yeah. So um, I'm looking at the time here, um, and I'm thinking that we should probably wrap up with looking at the, the very end and, and discussion of joy, unless you had something else you want to throw in.
0: No, nope. I think that is a perfect time to transition there.
1: All right. Well, do you want to read the, from the last paragraph here on joy? The last paragraph of the book? Joy... Which was the small
0: publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. As I close this chaotic volume, I open again the strange small book from which all Christianity came, and I am again haunted by a kind of confirmation. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels towers in this respect as in every other. Above all the thinkers who ever thought themselves tall, his pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, Ancient and modern were proud of concealing their their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far sight of his native city. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in the shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth and i have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth.
1: Yeah, that's really good. Um, it is.
0: Uh, and it's something um he he will bring up again in everlasting man, uh the the mirth uh of god, the god who, you know, the the god yeah, who became definitely. a baby, right? It, you know, his the the hands who made the universe couldn't reach the horns of the cattle above his manger.
1: Right? And it's the um again it's such a different tone from the beginning of the book but you don't notice you know through the the whole process of, of the book um maybe here it's completely christ-centered i mean he is the actor and he is the object I mean, it's it's all christ and there's a lightness
0: yeah. uh, a lightness and a joy to this final chapter i i think it's a very it's an incredibly fitting way to end the book
1: Yeah, and it it sort of also ends the book by saying that, like, this orthodoxy is not a a set of beliefs, it's not a set of rules, it's a person.
0: It's a person, uh, and it's an adventure um, to follow this person.
1: Well, uh, I know we're going to come back again next week um, with sort of an overall wrap-up of the chapter. Um, Certainly invite listeners, if there's things that we didn't cover in the book, uh, to email us with that. Um, if there are other points that you want to to bring up, um, we'd be happy to cover them.
0: Should we mention what we've chosen for the next one?
1: Yeah, sure. We should probably uh, give people a heads up. Uh, so, you know, we
0: went back and forth with, uh, you know, should we continue this Book club podcast once we're done with orthodoxy? And we're going to do that. We are going to pick up a book that neither Patrick or I had read, but it's still, uh, it, it's from gk chesterton's good friend hilaire belloc uh, and it's his book uh entitled the french revolution on um the french revolution as the name suggests so we're very excited to dive into that um you know a couple weeks from now
1: that's great yeah so we'll be making um an electronic copy again um, available to people since it's again it's another book that's out of copyright it's still good but uh, since it's out of copyright, we can provide a free e text and we'll, we'll put it up on a webpage as well. But we'll also send out links to physical copies. All right. Well, you want to close this out with a quick prayer?
0: Let's do it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of full grace. Of the Lord is with, with thee. thee. Blessed thou, art thou among women.
1: And blessed, and blessed is, is thee, the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, God pray, pray for, for us, the sinners. sinners, now May and in the hour of death. our death. Amen. Amen.
0: Lady Seat of Wisdom. Pray for us. Amen. You've been listening to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast at the Diddy Catholic Campus Center, serving the students, faculty, and staff of Emporia State University since 1990. To learn more about the Diddy Center, please visit us at www.diddycenter.org. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review, or better still, share with your friends. God bless.